I believe that we are called in seasons of life to be people who are ready and prepared to take risks for God. So I'm calling them God risks. Todd White has a phrase where he talks about being Godfident, not confident but Godfident, that because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have this characteristic that we can receive from God where we can exhibit a type of confidence, which is not natural confidence, but it's Godfidence. It's that God has something for us that is available that we can receive, which gives us a confidence which is supernatural. It is a Godfidence. So there are different types of risks. I remember a time, probably about 10 years ago, when we were also back in England, I was there with the whole family, with all the kids, and we'd gone for a walk out on the Dorset coast on a large kind of cliff of several hundred feet up that overlooks the sea called Ballard Down. And again, it was not summer, it was probably March, and the weather was dismal, and it was blowing a gale. And at this particular peninsula, this this huge section of land juts out into the sea, and then there are two huge um, kind of monoliths that rise up out of the sea, and uh, actually there's one of them now because the other one fell into the sea, um, and this huge um, rock is called Old Harry. I don't know why it's called Old Harry, but Old Harry had a wife, but she fell into the sea, and so now there's just Old Harry. <laughs> But there's, this, there's this, this connecting rock which goes from this um, piece of land that goes from this peninsula out to Old Harry. And it's probably two, 200 feet up, and the path is like this wide. And it's possible to walk out on this narrow path with pretty much sheer sides, either side, and get to Old Harry, which would be like the distance from where I am to the back of this room. And over the course of hundreds of years, this pathway out there has eroded, so it's incredibly narrow and craggy. And so my oldest son, who at the time was probably seven or eight, on this cold March day, with a gale howling at 60 miles an hour, was trying to convince me how he believed he could and should walk out across this craggy path to get to Old Harry. And he was convinced in his mind that he could do this. There was no doubt in his mind that he could do this. But I looked at him, uh, seven years old he was, wearing all of probably 40 pounds, and I felt the gale blowing, which was almost blowing me over, and I knew in my mind, before my wife got involved here, <laughs> that this is not a risk that he should be taking. One gust of wind and he would be blown off that. And while there may be a small reward for, for him for having walked across and got to old Harry, the potential loss was way too much to bear. And so we said no, <laughs> in case you're wondering, very loudly. David is not here now, but it's not because he did walk across and perished. He's, uh, 
he's actually, he's getting ready for a video shoot we're doing after the meeting with some of our Sozo team. Um, but his mother and I had the ability to make an assessment that was wiser and sounder than his own assessment at seven years old, and we said no. But at the time, God spoke to me and said to me that there are risks that you are faced with in life that you should not take. They're unwise risks. But there are risks which you are faced with that you should take. And we need to have the ability to discern what are the God risks that we need to move into and what are the foolish risks that we need to move out from. And so I want to talk today about being a people who can take God risks. I want to talk about the process of developing a lifestyle, of taking good God risks. And we're going to look at two people who represented taking God risks. And when they came to a confluence together of both stepping out and taking a risk, they caused a kingdom explosion to take place. And we're then going to look at three principles that we can respond to in our lives to be a people that are able to take God risks. And so my heart this morning is not just to get into the Word and to teach something. I, I want to impart something. I want us to receive something from the Holy Spirit, which I believe He has for all of us this morning. Because God is a transformational God. He's a God that seeks to encounter us and see us transformed by the Holy Spirit. We're not called to have mundane lives. We're not called to be a people who live a boring existence, but we're called to be a people who actually have significant, powerful, potent lives that are able to go way beyond the natural confines of our own mind and body and heart, but able to do things which are supernatural. This is the life that we are called to. God gives us dreams and aspirations. I trust this morning that if you're here, that there are unfulfilled dreams that you have. There are things that you were prepared at one time to believe God for that maybe you haven't seen yet. And I want to suggest to you that if you are that person, that the things that God has spoken to you are not there to be a frustration, but they're there to be a fulfillment. And that God wants for your desires and your dreams to be fulfilled. The Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The whole principle and so much of the imagery of the New Testament has to do with life and water and trees. And, and Jesus spoke endlessly on these types of things. But we are called to be a people that has desire fulfilled. And I believe that we can take hold of that. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So people read that in a couple of different ways. That if you delight yourself in the Lord, He gives you desires. That is to say, the desires that you have then come from Him. They're inspired by Him so that they're, because you are delighting in Him. And therefore, your desires are his desires, and so they're desires he wants to fulfill. Amen? He wants to fulfill the desires of our hearts. The Word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, 
performs its work in those who believe. Let's read this together here. So the apostle Paul, formerly Saul, speaking to the church in Thessalonica, he says this, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So we have this picture painted here, this process that Paul talks about of what the Word of God can and will do in you and me. The Word of God was one received by these people. They accepted it as God's Word, not just the Word of men. And then it will perform its work in who? Those who believe. So the Word of God is given to you and me for the purpose of doing something transformational inside of us, and it has the potential to cause your life to explode with kingdom potential. It's right there. But it will do that in those who believe. Now, I had a, 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 a teacher who was on a Bible school that I went to some 20 years ago and he had this phrase, and he would kind of provoke us and say, you know what? There are a lot of unbelieving believers out there. Be on your guard, he would say, that you don't become an unbelieving believer. And there's this complete paradox, obviously, that we're called believers. They were called believers because they believed. But we can cause the Word of God to be ineffectual in us when we cease to respond in belief to it. And we're going to look at that process in the time that we have now. How is it that a small group of people could end up having such a powerful effect on history? How is it that 12 disciples of Jesus ended up transforming the region and ultimately the, the world? I would say because they spent three years with the Word, they were immersed in the Word of God, in Jesus Christ, who we read is the Word of God, and they, in that environment, surrounded by the living Word, they came to points in their life where they chose to believe in and actually activate in faith response to the Word of God, and so they became transformed, as we read about in 1 Thessalonians. I wonder what kind of transformation we could affect if we immerse ourselves in the Word of God for some period of years and we respond like the disciples to the Word of God. What do you think? I think we can have a dramatic effect on the society around us. We're going to look at a process of transformation here. We're going to look at how this unfolds. We're going to look at the lives of two men. We're going to look in Acts 9 at Saul, who was the Apostle Paul. And then we're going to look at Ananias. And so we're going to read a pretty long, long passage of Scripture here. But before we do that, let me just kind of give you a two-minute backdrop of what we're reading about before we read it to help us grab hold of 
what there is to receive out of this passage. And so we're in Acts 9 here. So we know what happened. You've got this group of disciples that were gathered together in the upper room. They were, they were obedient and did what Jesus told them to do, and they waited together, and the Holy Spirit came. And so 120 people, the Holy Spirit falls upon them with great power. The ground shakes. There's a rushing wind. Everyone hears about it. They go out. They began speaking in other tongues. There's this massive outpouring and this revival. 3,000 men believe and women and children get added to the church. And so the church begins growing. It's exploding. There are miracles, signs, wonders. Um, The disciples are preaching and people getting healed and receiving the word. And it's amazing. But then there's a group of people who would be the unbelieving believers who were of the Pharisees, the religious people who did not accept Jesus. And Saul was the most prime example of this. And so they hated what was happening, and he made it his mission to destroy what God was doing and to bind and kill the believers. He was a man who was, had been versed in scriptures from birth. He was highly regarded. He was famous. He was well known, um, and he had a lot of influence. And so we're going to read about him. Then we have another guy who was not like Saul. We only read about him in this occasion. His name is Ananias. He's referred to as a certain disciple. He was an ordinary guy. He was part of this group. He probably didn't have the type of upbringing and the influence and in his mind, the significance that Saul had. But God had amazing things for him to do. So let's go ahead and read what happens here in Acts 9. We're going to read through this pretty quickly. I'm starting in Acts 9 verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You know, if you are bound up within yourself, in fear, in anger, in bitterness, and unbelief, you're always going to seek to try and bind other people up. And that is what... Saul was doing. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Looks like he kind of knew already. (laughs) And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, but get up And enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. That must have been a pretty miserable period of time. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, you're crazy. 
I have heard from many about this man and how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on his name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So we see the story here of these two men who both had to take a risk of a certain kind that they both had to push past something. For Saul, he was on a mission to go and do something very specific. And then suddenly his plans were thwarted and blown apart. And he was faced with a choice. He could have said, you know what? Forget this. I am not going to Damascus. I am going back to where I came. Let me try and figure out what's going on this blindness, regroup, and get back on my mission. For Ananias, when God spoke to him, he had a choice to make. He had had a choice whether to come back to God and delay, come back with with something for God to consider, or whether he was going to respond to God. But both of these men chose to do something powerful in response to God. And the result of what they did together caused a transformation in the region and in the kingdom of God and in in that world at the time. And for Saul, the word of God, this is a fascinating principle, this, had been stored up in him over decades, most likely. He was probably somewhere in his 20s. And he knew the word of God like nobody else at the time. It was said of some of these scholars that you could roll up the scrolls that they had of the, of the uh, Pentateuch and the writings that they, that they had, and if you put an arrow through the scroll, so familiar were they with the Word of God that they could tell you which words that the arrow had pierced. So here we have this man, Saul, who knew the Scriptures probably better than any of the disciples at the time, and yet the result of this deep, intimate knowledge with the Word of God was that he hated God, he hated Christians, and he was out murdering them. Why is that? Let's jump into Hebrews 4 verse 2 here, and we're going to talk about a principle of responding to the Word of God that brings the transformation that we see here that causes us to be a people that can be God-risk teachers. So the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to them about 
those Hebrews who were believers and talking about those who also had not believed. And here's what he said to them. He said, for indeed, the gospel, the good news, the word of God, was preached to us as well as to them. Those are the ones who didn't believe. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. So again, we see that the word of God can be seen, it can be heard, it can be taken in. But if it is not mixed with faith, it will not profit the hearer. So I'm going to do a little physical illustration here. I've not really planned this necessarily uh, very carefully, but let's, let's give it a shot here. I'm going to talk about the word mixed. So the word mixed in the Greek, there are, there are a couple of different words that are, that are translated mixed. And one of them is what happens when you mix oil and water. So I was going to call for an assistant, but I think that might give more opportunity for things to go wrong here. So I'm just going to do this myself for now. So we have a container here, and let's put in some vegetable oil, pure vegetable oil, no less. And then I have, I hope, <laughs> balsamic vinaigrette, yes. This is the really good stuff. I feel terrible actually wasting this, but hey, it's... So, yeah, I'm sorry. This is provided by Hannah Stoltz. And Hannah and Rich, I'm sorry for the wastefulness here of your hard-earned money. So, I don't know how well we can see this here. Let's do this right. I was about to shake that before the lid was on. That would be quite terrible. <laughs> So I've just poured in the oil and the, uh, I don't know if you can see that against the lights here, the oil and the vinegar. And you see them, they are definitely separated. So we'll shake it a little bit here. Now, they've kind of blended together here. But, what's that, Mary? It will take time. We'll let it, we'll let it sit. Maybe we'll let it sit out of sight in case there's some magic vinegar and it will ruin my illustration. But... Uh, <laughs> But the one uh, Greek word that is used for mix is what happens when you do what I just did. When you take two very different substances and you put them together and you mix them together. And with oil and vinegar, you can shake this up for as long as you want. But over time, whether it takes an hour, a day, or a week, those two separate substances will separate again and you will get the oil on the bottom, I'm sorry, the oil on the top and the vinegar on the bottom. They do not mix well. But the word that is used here for the Hebrews passage, if we can have that back up again, is the type of mixing that when you take two elements together, that when those two elements come and mix together, they actually create a new element, a new substance, and they actually transform into something completely new. And once being transformed, it, they cannot separate again into, into those two separate things. And so what happens when we mix the Word of God with faith 
upon hearing is that that word of God then being mixed with faith transforms into something altogether new in our spirit man, causing us inside to be transformed in our thinking, in our um, character, in our faith and response, and we then become different as a result of the Word of God that is in us. The Word of God comes through your ears and sits and dwells within you, and the opportunity that we all have is to respond to that Word of God and mix it with faith so that it actually transforms us into people that are having supernatural ability and capacity outside of our natural selves. And I want to let you know today that the heart of God towards me and you is that we would experience a type of transformation that would change us and all those around us. And we have a responsibility to respond to the Word of God that is in us and mix that with faith. And so we can be like Paul, Saul, who was a ticking kingdom time bomb, if you like. So we, it almost seems like he gets a bad rap that here's this guy that is full of the Word of God, but doing such terrible things. I want to let you know that the fact that there was so much of the Word of God in him was actually a really good thing. Because when he then responded and mixed that word with faith, all of those seeds within him, suddenly when the water of the Holy Spirit came and drenched all of those, everything started springing to life. And so when from that point of transformation, he went out and started preaching the gospel, it was this explosion, this glory explosion, because everything came to life within him. And I'm going to pray it when we're finished here for those of us among us who feel like there have been years or decades of the Word of God, that seed going in, but it has not yet produced that type of fruit. And I believe God wants to bring people to a point of decision this morning that life will come in a moment from the seed which has been lying in for a long time. So let's look at three principles here for how we can move into becoming God risk takers. What is it that both Saul here and Ananias did in when this opportunity came them to them, caused them to be a people who would take a risk? Paul took a risk in that he received the message from God. Ananias took a risk in order to give the message. There needs to have someone who gives a message and someone who receives a message. Both men did something dramatic in taking a risk to be part of this kingdom expansion at this time. Or we're going to look at three principles for you and I on how to be a God risk taker. Number one is humility. Humility, trusting in God's view and not ours. I remember... I had an opportunity to trust somebody in something when I didn't feel like naturally doing so. I, um, I, uh, when I was uh, 18, I decided to 
take a year out between our version of high school and university and do what we call a gap year. And um, during that space of time, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my future. And I had all these different grand plans and I had things lined up. And then my mom came to me during that season and she said, I have a suggestion for you. I have discovered something which I think might be good for you to do. So anybody here know that when you're a teenager, receiving advice and guidance from your parents sometimes is a hard thing to do. Anybody experience that? Yes. So initially when my mom came to me, with this particular proposal, in my natural self, I thought, you know what, mom, I think my ideas are better than yours. I think I'm just gonna carry on and do what I have conceived in my own mind and follow my own direction because I feel more comfortable about doing that. But something in me, the Holy Spirit, <laughs> I would like to think, um, prompted me to pause for a minute and say, you know what? All right, mom, I, uh, let's give your idea a shot. And she had set up for me this um, kind of apprenticeship with a, a man who ran a specialist car business, um, who there was known in the church there where, where they were based. Um, and I, I loved cars, I was passionate about them, and she had set up for me to go and work for him for two weeks to get a taste of the business. It was a very kind of entry-level position. It was kind of, to me, I felt like this was menial labor, but I decided to submit myself to my mom and her good intentions and follow what she was suggesting and not do what I thought myself. And I got connected with this man whose name was Julian Scaramanga. I probably told the story before. Um, Scaramanga is the name of one of the villains in one of the James Bond movies. I think it's, is it the man with the golden gun? Yes. Um, and, the and that name, Scaramanga, the writer of the James Bond series, Ian Fleming, met my boss's father on vacation in Crete. They were sitting having cocktails around a hotel pool in this very upmarket hotel. Ian Fleming introduced himself to my boss's father. Boss's father said, yes, my name is you know, Mr. Scaramanga. And they got talking and he says, I love your name. Can I use it uh, for the, one of the villains in one of my upcoming novels? And Mr. Scaramanga said, go ahead and be my guest. And so then the rest is history. So a little claim to fame. The other thing that we would constantly remind my boss um, was also a rather a claim to fame, which he didn't like, is that one of the unique um, traits of the villain Scaramanga is that he had three nipples. Anyway, um, we, uh, <laughs> if, you see, if you've seen the movie, you'll know that that is true. So, um, you know, it'll, te it'll teach you to, to, to boast too much about your claim to fame. There's always, there's always something somebody can joke about. Anyway, so I went to work for Julian Scaramanga, and what I discovered when I did that is that opportunity opened numerous doors for me. And I found that this was a place that was just the right fit for me. And while initially I kind of poo-pooed my mom's ideas, that this business was a business that I loved. And Mr. Scaramanga and me got on well, and he trained me up in the car industry. And he then later, he offered me a job, which I took. And it was a way for me to get connected and start out in my career and have a good job, earn a good wage. And 
the many steps that followed that of where I came to work, where I lived, were steps that led me on the path of my life that has taken, which caused me to actually come out to America, meet my beautiful wife, and build a life for myself here. So what is the point? The point is this, that in order to be people who live a God risk-taking life, we need to have the character trait of humility, that we're prepared to, cr- to trust God's view and not ours. When Saul was struck by this light, here's this very proud, arrogant, pompous man who is now belittled to a helpless, blind person. And the natural response for him would be, I'm going to hide I am going to stop the mission. I'm going to go back to where I come from. And I am not going to let anybody lead me by the hand or, me, or lead me in a place of vulnerability. I am going to rely on my own faculties and I am not going to trust the word of another person. But thankfully, he chose to follow a path of humility, he had to be led by the hand. He continued his journey, and he decided to respond and trust what God had said and not what he within himself thought. And so principle number one of being a people who take these God risks is that we are a humble people. In James 4, 6, James says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, those of you who are students of the Bible would know that this scripture, this is the fourth time the very same scripture is quoted. I think when the Bible says something once, we should really pay attention. If it says it twice, we better figure out, whoa, something's going on here. Third time, fourth time, God really feels like this is important. But those who choose to humble themselves to trust in God's view over my own, those people will receive grace from God, which is the empowerment to be something beyond what you naturally are. But those who are not prepared to be humble, those who are proud and say, I'm go- I, I think I can figure this out, it actually says God will oppose you. I don't know about you, but I've had a number of different people oppose me in life, but I certainly don't want to have God oppose me. Humility is a critical, critical characteristic of the righteous and of a risk taker. Number two, principle number two for being a God risk taker, hearing. Let the inner voice rule the outer voice. I'll say it again. We have to let the inner voice rule the outer voice. And here's how this happened. Ananias was spoken to by the Lord. He heard a voice, the inner voice, and the Lord says this. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man named Tarsus, man from Tarsus named Saul. So there was the one voice, the inner voice. Ananias then answered him, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. When you receive a word from God, when you hear that inner voice, there will always be outer voices which contradict the inner voice. And in this case, there were many more voices that he had heard that would 
cause him to conclude that the inner voice was absolute madness to follow. But he made a decision that I will let this inner voice, which I recognize as you, Lord, I will let it rule every single outer voice that I have heard. And if those outer voices are contrary to the inner voice, it will be the inner voice which I follow. And we have to make a decision, and really it's a decision that you and I can make right now. That when we hear the Lord speaking, and when we hear that inner voice, we're going to choose to submit to the inner voice, even if it is in conflict with what the outer voices say. Amen? Amen. That's a decision that we can make at any given time, or we can make it right now. I would ask you this. Do you recognize the inner voice? When the inner voice is speaking, do you know how God speaks to you? Do you know what that inner voice sounds like? Because God wants to make himself known and clear to you. And you can ask him today to show you what his voice sounds like if you're not clear on that. Principle number two is hearing. Let the inner voice rule the outer voice. And so number three, this is a bit of a stretch here. I want to stay on the H theme. Holy Spirit helplessness. When in doubt, get the Holy Spirit out. All right. So what are we talking about here? I when I was reading through this passage recently, I saw something in here that I hadn't seen before. And here's what I saw. Ananias was told by the Lord to go and do something very specific. And the Lord said to him this specifically, he says, get up and go to the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas for a man named uh, Saul of Tarsus, for he is praying He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias was given a specific instruction of what to do. But he didn't just undertake that specific instruction. He did something else on top of it. And we're going to read and see exactly what he did. I believe that... For Ananias, that this task that he felt he was given from the Holy Spirit was so daunting, it was so extreme, it was so overwhelming, it was, in many ways, I think it would be fear-inducing, that he responded to this desperately in kind of the only way that he, he, he knew that he could do it. All that Ananias had seen and known with his outpouring of the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit comes and gets involved, then we see boundaries broken, we see restoration happen, we see the blind eyes open, we see the lame legs healed, we see hard hearts softened, and he had learned to rely on the Holy Spirit, to trust the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a solution and be really the only way that he could live and work out the call of God on his life. And so here's what he did. When he went to Saul and spoke to him, he went and spoke to Saul and he said exactly what Jesus told him to say, but he added one thing. 
He went to Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain my sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Where did that come from? The Lord didn't say that. But Ananias, I can picture this man almost trembling, but making a choice. I'm going to respond to you, God. I'm going to do what you said, and I'm going to do it. I don't know what's going to happen. This guy's killed all my, a bunch of my friends, but I'm going to go there, and my hope is in the Holy Spirit. So he goes there, and mumbling, he, he, he gets these words out, waiting to see what the response is. But within his heart, he just says, I'm just going to go for broke on this one and trust the Holy Spirit. So he sent me here and I'm going to lay my hands on you and you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit because that's where my confidence is. But our confidence needs to be in the Holy Spirit. And we need to have a Holy Spirit helplessness when we're convicted that it is only by the power and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that we can live the type of lives that God wants us to live. I've told a story before, which is an example of this, and I'm going to give a specific application to it today, of when I was a young guy, I went on a vacation in my friend's small car, taking my parents' large caravan, what do you call them here, travel trailer, camper, And we were driving, and we went away for a weekend in the New Forest on vacation. Now, this friend of mine, his name is Dan Reynolds. I don't think I I gave that fact last time. And on our way back from this vacation, towing, we were driving this tiny little Volvo 3 Series. So, like, the smallest Volvo at the time you had here was, like, the 7 Series. In England, they had, like, four smaller ones to that. And this is the one we were driving. And we were towing this caravan, an old school one, which is heavy. And we were driving down a hill, probably doing about 55, 60 miles an hour. And Dan, my good friend Dan, um, for those who know him, is known for having a Jehu-type spirit when he drives. And he's uh, zealous and um, very animated and passionate driver. And so we were going a little faster than we probably should have been going at the time. And me having a background in physics, I kind of understood what can happen if you have a small car, a large caravan, and you're going downhill. And I said to Dan, hey, man, I think you should slow down a little bit. I think we're going a little bit fast for this hill. Dan, um, well, how can I put this? Um, He didn't slow down. (laughs) Um, He, uh, if anything, he actually, you know, sped up a little bit. And so I began to get a bit nervous. Um, Dan wasn't too nervous. And then as I'm sitting in the passenger seat, I begin to sort of feel myself swaying a bit like this. And I look behind us out of the rear window of the car, and the caravan was beginning to sway like this. And so initially, we weren't too troubled. We weren't panicking. And I understand, again, from my physics background, that there are certain things that you could possibly do to stop this ending in disaster. So I began kind of yelling out all these instructions to to Dan of, when the caravan is right in line, you just jab the brakes like that. And then you take it off and then jab them again when it swings back the other way. None of this worked. We were going faster and faster. Now I'm hearing tires screeching. This caravan is like, this tiny little Volvo is beginning to to kind of get pushed from side to side. 
in the end, the caravan is like leaning over on one wheel at a time. And in my mind, I'm just seeing this little Volvo getting flipped over and us rolling. Dan is now concerned and worried too. And we realize, <laughs> we realize that this very well could end in complete disaster. And I, we, we tried everything we could. There was no help left for us. There was nothing we could do. And suddenly, I just yelled out, Jesus! And instantly, the caravan came into line. Instantly, there was complete peace, and it was completely stabilized. It was, it was a miracle. But God spoke to me and said, I don't want you to wait till it's life and death to rely on the power of my Holy Spirit. But the power and presence of my Holy Spirit is given that in your daily life, you can see that intervention and transformation in the lives of everyone around you and in your own life. And I believe that God wants us to have a Holy Spirit helplessness where we learn to respond to the Holy Spirit in the everydays of life. Amen? So I believe that we are called to be people who take God risks. We're not irrational, but we have a spirit rationality. That we believe that we're called to do something beyond the bounds of our natural abilities. That we're called to be significant, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. That the words of God, when they come into us, they're mixed with faith. And so rather than separating over time, that they transform us and combine together to produce something that causes a glory explosion. And in the same way that Saul, when those words of God were mixed with faith, he became a different person. He became transformed. That we're called to live in the same type of transformation. Amen. Let's stand and I want to pray and have a chance for a response to what God is saying this morning. I don't know if Ben is here, if I could maybe have Ben play on the guitar. But if you just close your eyes with me and we're going to just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come right now and to bring application to each one of our hearts, to, to let us see with your eyes within ourselves and how we need to respond to your word. And I, I want to pray for a group of people. I believe that there are people who feel like in the same way that Saul had had a huge deposit of the Word of God in him, there are people here that have had a massive deposit of the Word of God over years, maybe decades. But you feel like that Word that is in you is not profiting much right now because it is not being mixed with faith in the way that we read. And I believe today God is giving you an opportunity to respond, to respond in faith to the things He said, to have a, a, like a Holy Spirit provocation to step out, to step out in humility, to, to step out having heard the inner voice and putting aside the outer voices, 
and to step out with that reliance on the Holy Spirit so that the Word of God that's deposited in you can begin to profit you hugely and all those around you. I believe there are people as well who feel like, maybe like Ananias, that there have been times when there's been a message for you to bring and give. A message for you to bring, but you felt like you haven't had the confidence to bring the message. But all is not lost because God is a God who doesn't cut us off, but he's a God of second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. And just because maybe you didn't respond when you heard that inner voice, that God will give you another chance to respond to him. But you can send the message. He'll give you other messages to send that the souls of this world need to hear. And if you don't bring the message, there will be no message bearer and there will be no hearer. And God is going to give you the opportunity to still be a message bringer. So let's take a minute here and I'm just going to pray for us all. But if you feel that you want to respond to one of those things today and you want to take a step of faith that the deposit of the Word of God within you would now produce much, then I would love to have some of the prayer servant team pray with you and feel free to come to the front. If you want to respond and make a decision that I will be someone, when I hear that inner voice, I'm going to bring the message. I will give the message. I may not have in the past, but I'm going to bring it now. Then I want to invite you to come forward and we will pray for you. And I just want to take a minute and pray for the rest of us as we respond to this and then we will dismiss the meeting. So let's just pray. Holy Spirit of God, we welcome you right now. We thank you that your your mission part of your mission to us is to transform us inwardly as we respond in obedience to the Word of God. And so I thank you that you have called us to a transformational life. And I ask you now, Holy Spirit, that you would fill everybody in this room, that you would would bring a provocation to each one of us, that you would lead us as we respond to you, and that we would be changed by the Word of God that has come to us, that we would respond in faith. So Holy Spirit, don't let us go. Shine the light. Show us how we need to respond, where we need to make change, where there has been unbelief, that we can see it and we can let it go and we can be a believing people, Father, today. We ask you that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Church, have a wonderful, warm weekend. Go in the peace of God.